Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. This week, workers at the King County Courthouse in downtown Seattle have had enough. We have complained when we are assaulted, when we are threatened, when we are harassed, when we are subject to people showing us their genitals. The president makes a move that even he isn't convinced is legal. We want to commend the president of the United States for his courageous action and informed action on extending the eviction moratorium. And the Washington Secretary of State has some interesting thoughts on this year's primary. But first, a shocker in the race for Seattle City Attorney. Late Friday night, incumbent Pete Holmes admitted defeat. He had served three terms as the city's top attorney, and he will be out come next year. Joining me now is Como's Charlie Harger and Paul Query. He is with the Washington Observer, a longtime reporter and observer of local politics. And uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts, both of you, on this uh, shocking race that was so close on election night, but Beat Holmes fell back into third place and has now admitted he's done. And I'll start off here, Jeff. I am somebody who was watching this race for quite a while now. And this really did seem to be shaping up as uh, you were going to have Ann Davison, who has run as a Republican. She has run as a Democrat before. Uh, she seemed pretty clear that she was going to be one of the two candidates. And it was essentially a jump shot, a jump ball for whoever would on the Democratic uh, or even more progressive side uh, get that nomination. Uh, as for this being a complete shocker, I'm not exactly sure. I, I would characterize it as that. I, I will say that Pete Holmes uh, was a person uh, people knew who he was. He certainly uh, had his uh, his supporters and his opponents. And then you have uh, this uh, new Nicole Thomas Kennedy, who really came out of nowhere. But I think as Paul can uh, attest, that endorsement from the stranger, that certainly seemed to be a big deal for her in terms of getting that name recognition and uh, getting voters out who are passionate for her cause. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the two things that really jump out at me in this race are the impact of the stranger's endorsement and the increasing impact of the democracy vouchers on politics in Seattle. I mean, if you look at the money, which is sort of what the observer focuses on, Nicole Thomas Kennedy raised almost all of her money via the democracy vouchers that, you know, kind of allowed her to be in the race in a way that I think it would be difficult for a candidate from the left. You know, I think it's reflective of the fact that there's some dissatisfaction with the city's approach to homelessness and crime, both on the right and on the left. Charlie's correct. And Davison's run is reflective of folks who on the on the right who are unhappy with, you know, the level of homelessness and petty crime in the city. And then there's also a you know sort of strong faction on the left reacting to the racial justice protests of the past year or so. And they're looking for change in that direction. And I think Pete Holmes really got sort of caught in a squeeze play there. Uh, it seems pretty clear that if he'd made it through the primary, he would have beaten either one of these challengers. But, you know, he didn't. So here we are. How much do you think the votes for Nicole Thomas Kennedy and Davison, certainly a more well-known candidate having run for City Hall in the past, how many of those votes were against Pete Holmes, not knowing who they are or necessarily what they stand for, but just wanting to throw the incumbent out? I think there was some real element of that. I also think that there's just sort of a a general kind of 
uh, appetite for change going on. And, and you saw that. I think there, there's definitely, you know, Pete Holmes has been in office for a long time. I think a lot of folks on either end of the spectrum were looking for, you know, a new, you know, a new face, I think. This is going to represent a major change no matter who is elected in the general. But with Nicole Thomas Kennedy, she describes herself as an abolitionist. What does that mean? She doesn't want a lot of crimes prosecuted. Uh, for example, she uh, thinks that many people uh, for petty crimes uh, and most of the crimes which a city attorney would go after uh, should instead be diverted into either a treatment program uh, or into uh, counseling, stuff like that. She is a person who does not want a lot of people to be sent to jail. Uh, one of the interesting things I, I've seen about her is that uh, she basically says for many crimes, if it is something that uh, you are a person who has to uh, get a court appointed attorney, if you are at such an income level that you have to get uh, somebody like that, uh, she generally will not prosecute those crimes unless it is it goes beyond the pale. Uh, that was sort of the track we were going on with Pete Holmes, uh, not wanting to prosecute a lot of crimes. Keep in mind, the city attorney only prosecutes misdemeanors. So for felonies, for people who are committing violent crimes, that is not necessarily in the purview of the Seattle city attorney. So uh, we, we need to be clear about that. If it's a murder, if it's a, a, you know, armed robbery, something like that, that's something the King County prosecutor handles. But if this is, for example, vagrancy or somebody who is trespassing, uh, a, a lot of the petty crimes that you uh, see that are often associated with homelessness, that is something the Seattle city attorney uh, handles. And it's looking like if, if she were to win, Jeff, um, a lot of those crimes just wouldn't be prosecuted. And Davison obviously wants to take the opposite approach, prosecuting more and more of these crimes. And certainly there's an appetite in Seattle for that after Pete Holmes's 12 years. But you mentioned that the city is only responsible for misdemeanors. Anything that's a felony, any serious major crime goes to the county. But based on some of the reporting we've been able to do, Dan Satterberg doesn't like to charge a lot of things as felonies. He charges them as misdemeanors, and therefore they get kicked down to municipal court, and then the city ends up getting overwhelmed with these cases that are actually more serious than they are charged as. Can you speak to that, Paul, a little bit? I, I think that definitely there's a trend in sort of you know prosecutorial philosophy away from, you know, charging folks with kind of the full weight of whatever they're accused of. And this goes to the point that Charlie was mentioning earlier, that a lot of these crimes are associated with homelessness, with extreme poverty, with substance abuse. And there's just a, a general trend toward trying to get those folks into treatment instead of trying to throw them in jail for the longest period, longest amount of time. You, you can you know understand where people are on that but there's also, this contributes to some broad civic frustration about low-level crime and sometimes even fairly violent crime that's associated with homeless encampments and, you know, and just, you know, sort of the general kind of physical look of the city during the pandemic and in the years immediately leading up to it. And obviously there's a lot of frustration there, which I think leads certainly to Ann Davison's candidacy. So Charlie, what do you think is going to happen here in the general? Uh, obviously, you know, to describe the primary as a, a jump ball over who was going to 
challenge Pete Holmes or who was going to you know come into that second place, then suddenly Pete Holmes fell into third and he said he was done. Ann Davison is a, a, a moderate. If in most states, she would be even viewed as left-leaning. However, in Seattle, uh, the politics as they are, I, I think the strategic play would be to paint her as a conservative, a Republican, and, and that is uh, abhorrent to uh, many uh left-leaning voters in Seattle, no matter what her policy is, I, a, a strategy I, I would certainly think would be to uh, paint Davison as the uh, extremist right-leaning candidate. That is a strategy uh, that may work. Uh, on the other hand, you uh, have a strategy if you were to uh, paint uh, Nicole Thomas Kennedy as someone uh, super far left and just out of touch with what's happening in Seattle with the homeless situation. Do you get enough voters out to uh, go against her and vote for Ann Davison? I don't know. That may be the strategy there. I, I think you are going to have uh, people try to paint this as a very black and white election. Whether that works or not, I, I, it, it's going to be uh, hard to see. It's really hard to see uh, a lot of Democrats in Seattle breaking in Ann Davidson's uh, direction. But, uh, you know, we're still what, almost three months out. A lot of things can change between now and then. Well, and, and Paul, the other thing that we've noticed, particularly with this election, and, and we saw it a, a couple of years ago when Shama Sawant was running for re-election, the initial returns favored the moderate, but then the later returns, a couple days after the election, as those day of ballots came in, they all broke hard left. What's going on there? I think that that's probably reflective of um, get out to vote efforts, online advertising, things that are targeting uh, somewhat younger voters. Um, in general, I think you, your older, more conservative voter under our vote by mail system tends to fill in their ballot early and send it in. So the election night return looks a little, you know, a little sort of more conservative than it would in general. I do think that Ann Davison is really going to struggle with that actual R label. I mean, I think as a you know, in terms of her actual positions, Charlie's right that she's a moderate, but she ran last year for lieutenant governor as a Republican. And I think that that's just going to be a hard label to get out from under in Seattle. Does she change her party affiliation to independent before the election or can she do that or would that be too risky of a move? It's a nonpartisan office. So technically, you know, nobody's a Republican or a Democrat in this race. But, you know, to Charlie's point, I think the strategy on Thomas Kennedy's side or among her supporters is going to be to remind folks that Ann Davison called herself a Republican as recently as last year. Um, the other thing to look at between the two is that Ann Davison has no criminal law history. She's a civil attorney. Meanwhile, Nicole Thomas Kennedy is a defender. She has no prosecutorial experience. So both of these people want to be the city's chief prosecutor. Does it really matter, though? I, I, I'm asking that in all sincerity. Is that what voters are, are looking for, your prosecutorial experience? Or are they looking for what you say you're going to do? Uh, they're, you know, they voted out Pete Holmes after uh, so many terms in office. Uh, I I, I ask that rhetorically, but does it really matter uh, to voters whether somebody has that amount of experience or if, are they looking for something else? Paul, can you answer that? 
I mean, I think that Nicole Thomas Kennedy can certainly say that she's seen the inside of a criminal courtroom, which, you know, is a I mean, I I think that that gives her a little bit of edge in that argument. But I tend to agree with Charlie that I don't think that this art, this this debate is really going to be about experience per se. You know, if we had seen, you know, somebody from Holmes's office, you know, challenge him or, you know, a deputy county prosecutor or someone like that who could, you know, could claim that argument, then that would be a different story. But I think that this is going to be about ideology more than experience. All right. Come on, Charlie Harger and Paul Query with the Washington Observer. Thank you guys so much for your time and insight. You bet, Jeff. Happy to be with you. All right. Still to come, violence in downtown Seattle has county workers saying enough is enough. For the past several years, workplace safety has been a concern for those of us who are the public servants. We'll hear from Matt Markovich when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podzla, joined once again by Como's Matt Markovich. And another big thing that happened this week was the issue of the downtown Seattle or King County Courthouse. And we're not talking about the one in Kent, the Regional Justice Center. We're talking about the one in Seattle on 3rd Avenue, where just in the past two weeks, we've seen an attack, uh, an attempted rape inside that building by someone who is associated with a nearby homeless encampment. The outrage has been quite dramatic and we're now seeing that the king county sheriff is pulling all of her non-uniformed patrol personnel out of the area and saying you're working from home because it's not safe down there she kind of stepped in it though because is not the king county sheriff's department in charge of security in and around the courthouse you could say she stepped in it because she basically put out an order for her professional staff, her non-uniformed staff, and that they're throughout the county, not just in the King County Courthouse, but the headquarters, her office is down in the courthouse. Her office is literally the closest window to the camp. Um, she basically puts out this order for uh, non-uniformed personnel to work from home because at the courthouse, it's unsafe. It's unsafe at the county administration building across the street at the, or surrounding the facilities of the county jail. And when you say stepped in it, because what she did was called, basically said the courthouse is unsafe. And, you know, people have been saying that, but she put it in writing to all her employees, you know, saying that in a declarative statement almost. And it wasn't a press release. It wasn't meant necessarily for public consumption. No, no. This went all to all sheriff employees. Um, and then even the next day, when we really wanted to ask her about it in person, she uh, canceled a press conference and no reason given. But the, a lot of suspicion is that she knew that she was going to have to be addressing this. While at the same time on that same day, there was a very big meeting that uh, I am privy to understanding what went on in this meeting between the judges and the, uh, the city mayor's office. Uh, the chief of staff was there. Uh, the county prosecutor, Dan Satterberg, members of King County and their homeless relief efforts, uh, the city of Seattle's homeless relief efforts, and a group called Just Care about what to do with that camp. Now, that camp basically consists of about 50 tents now. Um, And the city for months has been going in there with their own outreach program called REACH, um, 
to go in there and try and get people moved out. And clearly it, it's been slow. It hasn't been happening. A lot of complaints to have the county do something. And so the county has now contracted uh, with a group called Just Care. They're relatively new, meaning that they, they've been around for about a year. They're operated by the Public Defenders Association, which is different from the Public Defenders as a group with the county. It's a different association. So they're running this program called Just Cares, and they've had success on how they get people into hotels and get people off the street. So the county is now contracted with Just Care to go into the city park, which is the city's responsibility to try and remove people because everybody's frustrated about all this. Well, they've been clamoring to have this camp removed immediately. So during this meeting, all the sides basically agreed, we're going to give Just care some time and just care is saying they need at least a month to try and find the places to put these people they've identified 52 people that are could be possibly moved out of the camp there's five that they've identified that would have not given either way they would move out of the camp or not have been non-committal and they're supposed to be going into that camp and trying to get people out but it's going to be a month and you have the call for well we need it removed immediately so while the sheriff is making the statement that she, you know, the King County is safe. On the other hand, another element of the county is basically supporting an effort to move people out, not clear the camp, but just to move people out. Uh, so that it conflicted on that very same day. But isn't this city property? This isn't county property. That's right. It is city property. It's a city park. The city is responsible for what goes on there. The city police department is responsible for what goes on in terms of a criminal element there. The city police will not go into that camp unless they're asked to by the parks department or if there is a criminal incident involved. Otherwise, they just will not wander through the camp, told to me many times because of what the city council has done. They will just not walk through that camp without a reason to be there. So the city council has essentially barred SPD from patrolling this camp that's right they do not and the the chief has made it very clear we do not go into homeless camps anymore unless there's an incident or we are asked to by the the parks department if that camp is in the park so you have that city element and with reach and their contractors but now the county has come in and with its own money using its a different service provider and i even went into the camp on thursday and started asking people are you guys getting offers of hotel rooms and who are they coming from? Have you heard of reach? Yeah, we've heard of reach. Have you heard of just cares? No, we haven't heard of just cares. Some people said, yeah, I heard of just cares. Give me in a hotel room. I'm going to take it. Maybe I won't. It's a big mess while they talk. Well, publicly, a lot of the leaders are talking about cooperation on the ground. Everything is fractured. Isn't the County and the city also working on a land swamp here? Aren't they trying to basically give control of that park back to the county and the county could then take over patrolling and clearing that encampment. Yeah. And that was a little bit of news that uh, we broke here at Como news this week with Jeannie Cole Wells. It's an idea she had been kicking around since May when, uh, when it, when that, when that camp really became a problem um, it's been around for a year and a half, but it's really become a problem in the last couple of months. It, she got this idea in May to, as for a land swap or trying to acquire the land Obviously, they can't afford a piece of land that's uh, more than an acre or so in downtown Seattle. That's real expensive. So her, her, her pro- proposal 
is to make a land swap deal with the city of Seattle. They, the county would take over the park, control it, and basically indirectly saying, we are going to do something with that camp and make it happen right away. And then we're going to use that park for maybe something else. They're talking about renovating the courthouse, and now it could be part of the big campus plan. So there's a real reason for the county to own that park, not just to, for the issues of security, but for the future of the courthouse campus there, which the courthouse needs renovation. So Gina Cole Wells will possibly present this idea to the King County Council at the end of the month. The council is on its August recess, so nothing can happen until then. And she's basically going to wait until she sees what's happening with Just Cares, what we just talked about. Will the camp move out? How immediate does she make want to make this proposal? And the proposal isn't basically, hey, we're going to authorize this and we're going to just negotiate ourselves as a King County Council. No, they can't do that. It has to be a negotiation between the mayor's office and the county executive, Dow Constantine. They have to, it's a basically a motion to tell them to start talking about a land swap. We'll take over the city hall park as a county and you, the city of Seattle, we're going to offer up a piece of county land in exchange at a place that you believe that you could actually use. Is the city even open to this idea? It's such a new idea. No one's gotten back to me in, in a response, and that would be the mayor's office, and they have not gotten it back. All right, we'll have to see how that plays out. Matt Markovich, thank you as always for your time. You're welcome. When we come back, the president makes a move that even he isn't convinced is legal when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Under heavy pressure from progressive Democrats to extend an eviction moratorium as millions of Americans are being forced out of their homes, President Joe Biden on Tuesday said his administration would announce a new safety valve action. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Now, this has to do with the Centers for Disease Control barring evictions for 60 days in counties with substantial and high levels of uh, COVID transmission. And this is a big, big win for uh, AOC and the the liberal wing of the Democrats. Well, yeah, it's also a big win for uh potentially up, upwards of a million or more. Some estimates are as many as two million who may have been under the threat of being evicted uh, because they either don't have a job, they haven't been able to get access to this $45 billion in federal uh, rental aid. Even though it's been available since last December, they haven't been able to get their hands on it because either states have bungled getting that money to them or they just don't know how to get it. So this is basically kind of uh, hitting the pause button again. And the president knows that this could be challenged in court, which it probably will be. But uh, the Supreme Court had already said that he could not and the CDC could not renew this eviction moratorium past uh, the end of July without Congress actually passing something to make it happen. And again, this is not the president doing this. This is the CDC. And they did this because they said it's a public health crisis and that if you put these people out on the street, it risks spreading this COVID variant and other COVID even worse than it's already going right now. And because it is a public health crisis, they say we are going to put a new moratorium in. Not the same moratorium, not extending the same moratorium, and not necessarily in every place in the country. It's only going to affect about 90% of the country in places where there are very, very high levels of transmission. And we're seeing it in a whole lot of the country. Uh, whether this holds and, and uh, holds muster in the Supreme Court will be seen depending on who challenges it. And of course, landlords are likely 
to challenge this. But the president and his spokesperson, Jen Psaki, uh, this week said, well, look, the landlords have access to the same money that the tenants have. All they got to do is go to their state housing development offices, in, in this case, in Washington state, go there and say, look, I want to have access to this here because my tenants haven't been paying me. And I'm going to lose this apartment building or this house because my mortgage holder is saying, if you don't pay us what we owe, we're going to take the building back. So this money is all there available to people, but there has either been red tape or people just don't know how to apply for it. And so they haven't been able to get it. And that's what this whole new moratorium is meant to basically put the pause, hit the pause button so that people can take advantage of this money. But haven't you seen in a number of states where they've sort of blocked the distribution of these funds, uh, particularly in, in, in states led by conservative governors? There have been some states that have refused a lot of COVID assistance, which is a head scratcher because it's certainly going to help their citizens. But then the same head scratchers happening in, happening in states like Florida and Texas, where they're basically banning local jurisdictions, schools and others from saying you have to wear a mask or you have to have a vaccine or you have to distance or any of those things that would mitigate this new spread of a variant. And they're basically saying you can't do it. So there's a lot of things that are head scratchers, especially when it comes to helping the citizens that they are supposed to serve. You mentioned this is going to get challenged in court, most likely because the Supreme Court said Congress would have to act, but Congress is recessed for August, hasn't it? It has, and uh, of course the Senate could do something, they're still in, but they haven't. And I have not seen any specific challenge to this yet, and you can't just go straight to the Supreme Court and say, hey, we're going to do this. You have to go into the lower courts, that takes a little time. And look, there's one president who was masterful at doing these things, and that is the guy before Joe Biden. That's Donald Trump. He would do things uh, like ending DACA programs or going or doing an end run around Congress and getting money for border walls and taking it from other departments. It would be challenged. It would be paused. It would be unpaused. But all of that stuff, that litigation would go on for quite some time. And in the meantime, Donald Trump continued to do what he wanted to do. So Joe Biden, even though he's already admitted that perhaps this isn't entirely legal, he says, we'll let them challenge it in court if they want to. And, you know, if we lose, we lose. But in the meantime, we're going to keep people from getting thrown out in the streets. Couldn't he just declare another national emergency? Once the Supreme Court says you could not extend something, that's the final verdict on that. They're saying, no, this isn't an extension. This is a whole different thing. It's, it's basically like you've got to return that blue polka dot dress to the store. And then uh, the store says, OK, well, here's a red polka dot dress. Oh, it's a new dress. It's a completely different thing. That's basically the reasoning here uh, by the CDC, but it's really a serious issue. I mean, if you throw people out in the street, many of them will end up in homeless shelters. If they're unvaccinated, the chance of them spreading and getting COVID is goes up by a, a large factor if, if it's not just them staying in their homes. And that's really what the CDC's reasoning is behind all this. We're talking so much about renters being evicted, but what about people that own their homes? A lot of them have lost jobs too. Do they have any assistance here? Because they're dealing with mortgages. Yeah, a lot of that assistance can go toward paying their mortgage, and uh, but you have to apply for it. And even though we talk about this being federal money, it's all administered on the local level through state housing agencies. So the federal government has made this money, $45 billion. And remember, this wasn't done under Joe Biden. This was done under President Trump. This was passed back last December before they all went home for recess. And that housing money is available. It's been available, but we're told that at least up until the last couple of weeks, only $3 billion of that $45 billion was spent, which is 
just mind-boggling when a lot of people could be paying these bills, they could they could be getting caught up on rent, and the landlords would have that money to pay their mortgages. What about the criticism that the, the more assistance you put out there, the less incentive it has for people to go back to work? I'm sure that's uh, been something that's debated in Washington, D.C. Well, I, I think that debate was more along the lines of unemployment help, but in this case, this is, you know, this is, this is really a life-and-death situation for a lot of people. If they can't, they have to make a decision between whether they're going to pay for food for their kids or pay for the roof over their heads and then you know you run out of time paying for that roof over your head and if the local laws say that they can evict you and a lot of those eviction notices went out last week when this moratorium expired those folks have no other recourse but when the sheriff shows up and puts everything out on the street they have nowhere to go all right abc's andy field from washington dc thank you so much for your time thanks jeff still to come mask and vaccine mandates and the political predictor of covid when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The White House's COVID data director said this week that the U.S. administered 864,000 doses of the vaccine just in one day. That includes over half a million first doses, the highest single-day numbers in over a month. This as we deal with, what is it now, fourth, fifth wave of COVID-19, mostly with those that are unvaccinated. Joining me now is ABC's Mark Remillard, and this is the first time we've seen in, in quite some time uh, a surge in vaccinations. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it appears that vaccinations are on an increase, um, or at least a little more of a steady increase, and that's a positive sign amid everything that's been going on with COVID. The country is, you know, perhaps in its worst state since winter last year, uh, and so we've now seen a number of days in the recent week or so where we've crossed over 800,000 doses in a day. Multiple times that's happened. The average on a daily basis continues to climb. And so those are, uh, as I said, positive indicators as uh, the country with cases and, and hospitalizations is going the wrong way. As of Thursday, the, uh, there are 48 states that are seeing increases in, ho- in, in caseloads. There are 44 states that are seeing rising hospital uh, admissions. And so you can see that as this gets to be a more serious situation, once again, with the spread of Delta, you know, it's not clear exactly what's driving the increase in vaccinations. If it's companies mandating this, if it's that, you know, some schools and colleges and universities are going to start mandating this if they haven't already. And so kids are going back for the fall semester soon. You've got Biden for uh, uh, mandating the federal government workers get vaccinated. There are those mandates that are taking place. But then, you know, that may be part of what's driving the increase. But then there's also uh, perhaps some people who are just on the fence or who didn't make it a priority that are now making it a priority because of Delta and how serious and how clear night and day the differences between the people who are getting severely sick and the people who are not. And and it is so clearly and dominate uh, dominantly in the unvaccinated population that people are getting severely sick and ending up in the hospital and, and in some cases dying from it compared to Uh, those who are vaccinated. One of the things we hear from the vaccine critics is these breakthrough cases. They say that even though people are getting the vaccine, they are still getting COVID. But as you say, if you're vaccinated, you're likely to have far less serious consequences. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to uh, keep it in perspective that the breakthrough cases are still, as far as we know, is very rare. Um, They're still not common and the risk of having a symptomatic case of COVID-19 is still far higher in someone who is unvaccinated than someone who is vaccinated. So the breakthrough cases, 
I, I don't think those are one to one that we're talking about when we compare an unvaccinated person and a vaccinated person. It's not even close. But even beyond that, the outcome of a COVID-19 case is so vastly different between the two groups. Uh, those who are getting COVID-19 and ending up in the hospital and ending up dying from COVID-19 are so vastly more, uh, that's occurring so much more in the group that is unvaccinated than the people who are vaccinated. Most cases in which someone has a breakthrough case of COVID-19 who is vaccinated, they have a mild case of COVID-19. It resolves without them going to the hospital. There are some cases. It's not absolute that they don't end up in the hospital or that they don't die from it even, but they're very rare. And statistically, the numbers are so much smaller in that vaccinated group because of the protection they have from the vaccine compared to those who are unvaccinated. And to be a bit cynical, only in the United States, political ideology plays a role in this. And depending on what state you are, depending on what your political ideology is, could determine whether or not you're likely to get COVID. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I mean, if you look at the maps where the break, uh, the um, outbreaks are the worst right now, you see them in a number of um, Republican-led states. Uh, and you look at states like, and, and I think just an example of the politicization of this, it can be seen in the recent comments between President Biden and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been touted to be a 2024 hopeful. So I I wouldn't put it beyond the fact that uh, raising his public profile is probably on his mind, but he has barred local communities from issuing mask mandates. He has used, um, I think, politically charged language to say that all he said, every uh, variant of COVID-19 is the result of migrants crossing the U.S. border. And I have not seen the evidence to support that assertion that every uh, variant coming across is due to the southern border. Using that as a political, you know, push against Biden. Biden, um, uh, you know, as well though has been critical of DeSantis, and so I think you have this politicization of the 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 vaccines of COVID in general. I think that's been something. You know, this is just a recent example with DeSantis and Biden, but I think this is something that's been going on for you know what is it. 17 months now, 18 months that we've been in this pandemic. But we're also seeing private businesses jump into the fray with with some of them requiring vaccines if you're going to patronize their store. Yeah, that's right. And this is something that I think is adding some pressure on people uh, to get vaccinated. And, you know, if your employer tells you that you can't come to work unless you're vaccinated, you know, at the end of the day, you may have an option to say, well, if, if you really don't want to get vaccinated, then you can go work somewhere else. And we've seen courts say that to people. One of the very earliest cases on this matter was Houston Methodist, which is the largest hospital system uh, in Houston. And they had were one of the first um, groups that said their employees must be vaccinated to come to work. Uh, a couple hundred employees sued against that, lost that case in federal court. The judge said if they don't like it, they can go work somewhere else. And so courts have been very willing to allow businesses, especially private businesses, to make that determination on their own if they want to require as a condition of employment that people are vaccinated to work there. The new thing that we're starting to see is businesses requiring people to show proof of vaccination to come in. And this is something that some businesses are taking the initiative of on their own. But we're also now seeing like where I live in New York City. The city is going is is starting to mandate it, later this month and into September. The city has announced that they're going to require that businesses like restaurants, gyms, uh, performance venues that they check someone's 
vaccination status before they enter. So uh, kind of taking it out of the restaurant's hand, it's not even their option anymore. They must check whether or not someone is vaccinated. So again, that puts pressure on people because if you want to do anything in New York City, basically after that, you've got to be vaccinated. All right, ABC's Mark Remillard, thank you so much for your time. Hey, my pleasure. No problem. Still to come, why the Secretary of State wants to change the state's August primary when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Finally, this past week, we saw the primary election in an off year, no less. Washington Secretary of State acknowledges August is not the ideal time for people to go to the polls. The story from Como's Corwin Hake. Kim Wyman, whose job as Secretary of State includes overseeing elections, tells Como News, as of today, only 17% of voters have returned their primary ballots. She does expect turnout to grow to 30%. Uh, but that's still sad when you think that one in three voters are the ones deciding who's going to make it to the November ballot for all the voters to vote on. Could it be the dog days of summer are not the best time to hold an election? Ron Dotsauer is political analyst with Strategies 360. Why we have an August primary, I is just beside me. It is a bad idea. We need to get rid of it. Wyman won't offer an opinion on that. She does say this primary election is more important than last November's presidential election. Your town mayor, your, your city council members, your school board members, these are people that affect your daily life. Corwin Hake, Como News. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politica. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week and Life Beat with Marina Rockinger. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And for all the election results, just go to comonews.com slash elections. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.